Welcome to A Learner's Journey. My name is Molly Sanders, and the goal of this podcast is to inspire and motivate you by connecting you with a variety of passionate horsewomen and men who have dedicated their lives to helping horses and their people. I'm grateful you're here. In today's episode, I bring to you a wonderful horseman named Ross Jacobs. Ross was a delight to talk to. He's full of wit and stories and humility. He spent 15 years as a medical researcher, and the critical thinking that science instilled in him influences his horsemanship to this day. There are a series of connections that led me to Ross, one of them being Harry Whitney, who I have yet to meet. In about a week, I'll be heading to California to take a clinic with him. And the only reason I'm doing that is because he's one of Charlie Snell's mentors. And Charlie, for a couple years now, has been saying, if you ever get a chance to study with Harry, take it. So I'm taking it. And in preparation for this clinic, I've been researching him and I found out about Ross through that research. Um, Ross conducted a series of interviews with Harry and thinks highly of him as well and considers him one of his main mentors. Then recently I had a podcast interview with Tom Motes. You may have heard or uh, seen it. And I, after the interview, I asked Tom for people that he would like to hear interviewed, and Ross was top on his list. So I reached out to Ross, and he accepted my invitation, and I loved this conversation. It was so much fun, and I hope you enjoy it as well. We explored a wide range of topics from the downsides of lateral flexion to what he learned from an old Finnish farmer and lessons that he learned from spending time with only horses for company. So let's get to the conversation with Ross. Tell me a little bit about how horses came into your life. How did, how did you get started with horses? Um, they didn't really come into my life. I came into theirs. I imposed myself on them. Um, so I was a kid. I grew up in Sydney, uh, in Australia, and uh, we lived in the northern beaches. And my sister a bit younger than me she's a horse nut like all girls you know she read all the my little pony books and all that sort of stuff right and um she wanted to go riding and eventually my parents succumbed and they said well you can go but one of your brothers has to go with you <laughs> and uh, i got dragged along and uh, we went to a riding school up in the northern areas of sydney and um afterwards i was i, I was drag kicking and screaming there but afterwards I wanted to stay and do more and so I I didn't even tell mum she was waiting in the car but I went and asked the guy who owned the school if um, there were any jobs he had and he said well if you can come and clean stables on a Saturday at the end of the day we, you can have a lesson so I went and did that that's what I did and I I was quite young I was about eight or nine wow and um much my parents hated it but they knew not to argue with me now so, did your sister did your sister want to go back no, as well? no my sister lost the passion yeah but i've you know I, molly i've always felt a little guilt about it because i wonder if i ruined it for her oh. i've always just a little hint i mean she would deny it now and say oh it doesn't care i don't care about it but i've always felt a little guilt about it because i i hope i didn't ruin it for her 
Oh, that's so interesting. So, cause one of the things that I was curious about is what happened. Can, do you remember what happened for you where you went, I want to be a part of this? No, I don't. I, okay. I really, I really don't. I mean, later okay. I can, I know why I wanted to stay in it and stuff, but I don't even remember the horse I rode or, okay. or anything. I remember approaching the owner. Um, and I stayed at that riding school until I was 18 and went to university. Wow. And, you know, by the time I was 12 or something, I was doing a little bit of training and starting horses for them. And I was competing and jumping and dressage. They were a Dutch couple that owned the riding school. And so um, the wife, she was a very capable dressage uh, rider. And I learned a lot from her. And the husband was came from a very famous Dutch show jumping family. And so show jumping and dressage were my passion. And people were paying me to ride their horses in shows and stuff like that. Interesting. But then I, I left if, and went to university. So I wonder if uh, the fellow, the the fellow, the head of the school, if he if if that was a rare occurrence like of this eight or nine year old boy coming up and asking if he could do some job, you know, to, to get riding lessons. Like I would yeah. think that would be a standout moment. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. We, did, we, we got on great. He, he was a great mentor and mm -hmm. stuff, but um, by the time I was in my mid teens, he and his wife split up I and mean, he took off. And so I was helping her run the school. I was doing less teaching lessons and stuff like that. Okay. She had a couple of little kids and stuff she was left with, but, Okay. Uh, it's a long time ago. I, I sometimes wonder what happened to them. I know the riding school doesn't exist anymore. It's all now just housing everywhere. So Right. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's interesting. So you mentioned that at the age of 12, you started to do a little bit of training. And so did you, and then you went to university. When did it switch back um, for you to decide you want to dive in? Long time. Okay. Uh, I put I couldn't put a number on it, but it'd be at least over. It would be over twenty years. Okay. Now I, I I say that, but I always kept horses. I always had horses, but to actually switch and start doing it professionally, it was over twenty years. I, I went to university, got a science degree, got a PhD in physiology, did fifteen years of medical research, wow. and then I quit medical research, and I still had a saddle and a bridle. Mm -hmm. So I put up my shingle saying horse starting. That's so interesting. Do so, you feel like the the time that you spent in college and then your medical background, did that um, did that prepare you in any way for your career with horses or was it? Um, you know, I, I used to think, I, especially when I was hanging out with Harry Whitney, I, we would talk and stuff and I said how I envied him that he didn't have a hiatus. Mm -hmm. he went to college and he got his animal husbandry degree, but he still kept working with horses. And after college, he went into horses. And I always said, you're so lucky. I, you didn't have that time that I was doing other stuff. Right. And he said something. Um, Harry occasionally has been known to say smart things, and this was one of the <laughs> smarter things he said. <laughs> but that doesn't happen a lot, but it happened <sighs> this time. He said that um, He said that he envied me. And he uh, asked why. He said, because you went and studied science and you learned how to think hmm. and you learnt, learnt how to critically think and how to ask questions. And he said, that was a lot slower for me. Interesting. And, he's, and, and I've thought about this a lot. And so I think going off and doing a science degree 
didn't directly help me with my horsemanship, but I think indirectly in that it made me a better thinker and I could question things. And the other thing, as I'll say about this, which I even, I bring up in my clinics, when I was enrolled to do my PhD, the first week of my, of my um, enrollment, my supervisor came up to me and he said, we were talking, and he said, the thing I want you to know, learn most is that assume everything you're told is wrong until you're satisfied it's not. Hmm. And, and that sounds a little cynical to some people, but sure. I've lived my life by that. Interesting. Every, everything I'm told, I go, hmm, even if it sounds great, mm -hmm. I go, hmm, and then I have to think about it and I'll go and experiment with it. So when I work with a, a horse or when I'm teaching a principle of horsemanship, I have to know everything I do comes from testing and retesting and rethinking and trying stuff that was the opposite of what I was thinking. Right. And trying to, it's that scientist in me, I have to do the experiment. And so even if I'm wrong, I still come to the conclusions based on some hard for test, not because I read it or somebody told me, mm -hmm. but because I can come from testing it to my conclusions. Now, somebody could come along, along any moment and show me that I'm wrong, and I'm happy mm -hmm. to do that. Right. Um, I, I get thrilled when that happens, but I'll still retest it again. That's so, so it's science so taught me that. So that's, that break that I had taught me that. I don't think I would have had that if I hadn't had the break. Right. That's great. And you mentioned in an email exchange um, that we had that um, that there's a role of critical thinking in horsemanship. Yes. And so this this is what you're talking about. Yes. Or what you're talking about. One of them, the one of the brick walls I, I come across is that um, is that there isn't enough. Okay. And people assume People tend to assume that if you want to discuss an idea, that you're already having an argument and you're putting somebody else down because that's what they do. Oh. People want to get defensive. I mean, you brought up the, um, in, in, in one of the emails about the idea that I had done an article on lateral flexion mm -hmm. and, why, and why I don't teach it. Right. But by writing that, I had I received so much criticism. Oh, I'm sure. Because it was then taken as an attack on those who do this. Yes. Yes. Oh, that's so okay. That's really interesting. Yeah. And instead I of just uh instead of just this, which I'm gonna ask you about in a minute, if people are wondering what we're talking about, mm -hmm. we're gonna talk about it. But um instead of just this thought provoking idea that you're putting out there, which is what I took it as. People are saying, oh, you're saying it's bad, it's wrong. Anyone that teaches it is bad and wrong. Yes. We want to we wanna make things black and white. We want to make things super simple. And you're, I love what you're sharing about your background in science, that it's trained you that that's not what it's about. Because that's how science progresses. Right. When you come up with a study, you publish it in a paper, you mm -hmm. go to a conference, you present it. And the job of every other scientist in the room is to, is to pull wrong. it apart. Yes. Yes. And then you progress. That's how your idea then is built on for a new idea. 
and that ID gets built on for another ID because pull it apart. So that's the, that's the, that's the angle I come from when I talk about principles of horsemanship right. and, and, and behavior and stuff. It's about, okay, that's a great idea, but where's it wrong? Right. And what can we do to yes. make it better and why and stuff? Oh, that's uh, very, it's so, that's so interesting. So you mentioned Harry Whitney, um, and that's how I found you, is uh, you did a series of interviews with him. Um, I, I think it's several years ago. Yeah, you... I, five, sorry, about that. Okay, and they're, they're on his, they're on his website, and I was researching him, because um, I'm going to go and spend a little time with him in September. And anyway, so that's how I found you. Um, what tell us a little bit about your experience with Harry? Um, what what would you say? What what's a big lesson that you took from him? Oh look, you know um, he's definitely one of the most important horse people in my life, if not the most. I would put him amongst the top two that have been really important. Three maybe most important people in my life in influencing me. But it's not that he said taught me this is what you need to do he gave he made he helped make me brave enough to go and find a way hmm. and, and harry's a very intelligent man and even if i talk about something that he hadn't considered he can talk about it intelligently mm -hmm. and and we could go and experiment it but um i owe a huge debt for him to him uh because of his generosity he, I met him in, in um, California. I came over to the States. I'd just been a couple of years started professionally starting training horses. And I came over to the States to see what else was around because I knew that I needed some um, adult education. I needed some mm -hmm. higher education. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to come and see, you know, Ray Hunt and Buck Brannerman and Joe Walter and all these guys. And at the end, I got a chance through a friend, Gail Ivey, to go and see Harry because she took me to go and see Harry and we hooded it off straight away and Harry came out to Australia a couple of years and then he said he wasn't coming and then I said well what the hell am I going to do if you're not going to come <laughs> and, and he he said one of the most generous things anyone's ever said to me he said you find the airfare you come to Arizona stay as long as you like I'll feed you and I'll house you wow. and I did that for nearly 15 years wow and every year. No, wait a minute. You you don't mean you stayed there for fifteen years. You came no. back and forth. Every January, February, I'd come between six and and twelve weeks. Oh wow! Harry would feed me and and put me in a motorhome, and he and I would work horses together. I'd help him at clinics or whatever, um, and it was just an amazing experience to do that. And, and of course, as a result of it, we became very very close friends. Sure. That hasn't happened for a while because I'm busy, he's busy, and, you know, that's the way it is. I saw him about nearly two months ago in Minnesota, but we got to, he was, he was working and I finally got a couple of hours to catch up with him. So he taught me to be generous with what I understood. Hmm. He taught me that because of his generosity. Yeah. Um, but there's a whole lot of little things that he taught me, and, and, and I know that... Uh, you did a podcast with Tom Motes and he talked about directing the horse's thought. Yes. And Harry was certainly pivotal in getting me, in starting me to think about that. Um, 
and I, I that has been a fundamental uh, foundation of everything that I do, as it is with everything Harry does. I haven't found an example where it's not important. With all the thousands of horses I've worked, it's never not been significant. And tell us a little bit about what what it means to you. Like, what what does that mean to to get a horse's thought, and and why it's so important? So horses have a complex neural neural system, a complex brain, and like humans, everything they do starts with an idea. You don't decide you're going to make yourself a cup of coffee. Find yourself at the sink with a coffee cup in your hand. There's there's a hundred little thoughts, ideas about how you're going to get out of your chair, direction you're going to walk, blah, blah, blah. There's all that. Horses are no different. If you don't have those thoughts, you're lost. That's what happens with people with dementia and they find wandering the streets. Right, right. Because they're not having any ideas of, of a purpose or what they're trying to do. The the And so you watch a horse in the paddock. They Everything they do is an idea. If they're thirsty, they find looking for the water trough, they point their body toward their eyes to the water trough, they point their body to the water trough, they get their feet going. And so when we want a horse to do something, the path of least resistance is they are already thinking that that's what they want to do. Okay. So if a horse is thinking, I want to, I'm thirsty, I need to go to the water trough. But we're time limited and we need to go to the arena or we need to go into the, yeah, the arena. The, comp- the judge is ringing the bell. They're waiting for us. We've got to go to the arena. Mm-hmm. But the horse is still thinking about going to the water trough. There is conflict between what he's thinking about and what we want him to think about. And he's always trying to do what he's thinking about. Even if it's subtle, there's a, if only I could, if I, if only Ross would get off my back, if only Ross would let go of the lead rope, I'd go to the water trough. Mm-hmm. And so the job of training is to get a horse to change his thought. It's all about changing from what they're thinking of doing to what we want them to think about doing. And then there's no trouble in it. Right. That's the basis of it. Yeah. Now, the practice of it is a lot more complex yes. and in a thousand different ways. Right. But I've played with this for so much of my working life. I, I can't be convinced so far. I haven't been convinced that it's wrong. Right. And I see the difference between there's a school of thought where if you want a horse of thought, then you need to move his feet. Right. And that's coming at it backwards. Because that, that's creating resignation in a horse. Mm-hmm. Um, you'll see that in examples of, say, horses that are, uh, you know, you could put them in the round pen at liberty and you want them to hook on or join up, whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it, mm-hmm. and, you, and you drive them until they do the head down and the licking and chewing and stuff. That's creating resignation in a horse. Because if he really wanted to be with us, you'd have to rename him Velcro because you couldn't get him off you. Right. But he doesn't. But we just say being out there is a terrible idea because if you want to be out there, we're gonna, I'm going to run you. Right. And then he says, just show me what to do so I can ha- quit running. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people think moving the feet will change the thought, but it still 
has ill feeling that because it wasn't his idea he just gave up in futility and right. so it might it might change the thought but it's it's like you're saying it's coming with um an ill feeling it's not yes. it's not changing the thought in the way that we're wanting yes it's a creating obedience okay. but but not willingness and okayness right and so when you've got that <clears throat> there's always a part of a horse just like there is in humans that just don't want to be part of it. There's always a little resistance. They'll always, mm -hmm. he'll be a little late on some things. He'll be a little crooked about maybe his turns. He'll mm -hmm. be a little heavy on his forehand. Just something that will just say, you know, he's not really into this. Right. Humans right. do the same thing. Sure. You yeah. Know, you, go, you go get a job you don't really want to do and they say, well, we'll make it worth your while. We'll double your salary. Okay, I'll go and do it. Mm -hmm. But you really don't like the job. Right. You're right. It's it's you're you're in it for the the end result. You're in it for the money, not in it for the job yeah. itself. Yeah. 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 So something that popped into my mind as you were talking about the water trough, actually, um, I I get to look out my window and watch my herd, which I love. And so often when I'm watching them, you can see where their thought is going. That's right. Know, right. And yes. then it's such a beautiful thing to watch the balance in their body the forwardness in their movement. And I often find myself feeling like that's what I want. That's what I want to be creating. Right. Yes. Is, is that look and how hard that is. And I yes. think part of it is because um, getting the horse's thought in their mind is it's not necessarily a new concept to me, but the emphasis on it is, is new. Mm -hmm. um, I have been from the camp of, move their feet to get their attention with you, you know, move their feet to do a variety of things, make it more uncomfortable out there, you know, right. those kinds of things. So this is, it's, it's fairly new to me and I find it fascinating. Uh, I'm totally intrigued by it, but I do find myself at a loss for sometimes. And I know that I'm going to ask you something that I think is, you know, a lifetime answer, but if, if in that example, of you going to the arena, your horse's mind is somewhere else. They're still thinking about the herd or the trough or whatever. You're wanting to go to the arena. What what does that look like to get their thought with you if it's not moving their feet? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> it's following a field. There's a thing I talk about a lot at clinics and I try to teach it. And there's you can move a horse through directing or driving and a lot of training um, is about driving so when you drive a horse and the most simplest terms of this when you drive a horse you're sending a horse away from something so the, look the clearest um, image i can give you of that there's it's in everything but it, the clearest image i can if you want to put a horse out on the lunge you pick up the whip and you flip the whip and he goes forward. Right. He's going away from the whip. Okay. So his thought is on the whip and he's going, oh my goodness, the whip. I need, to, and his feet go away, but mm -hmm. his thoughts on the whip. So he's leaving the whip. Right. That's driving. Right. When you're directing a horse, you're actually getting a change where the horse's thought and his feet are going in the same place. 
So I call it, so when you're driving, you're, you're telling a horse to move away from something. When you're directing, you're telling them to move towards something. Okay. So if in the example of lunging him, if I picked up a feel in the, le in the lunge rope and got a little energy in my body, just a little, not chasing, just like going in the circle with him, he's going with me and the feel of the rope. Mm -hmm. He's not going away from something. Right. And when you've got a horse that is following their thought with their feet, that's what it feels like. Mm -hmm. There's no brace. For example, um, you might feel a horse. You, you're, ri you're riding a horse. You lift up your seat. He doesn't just spurt off and he doesn't require you to bang, 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 bang. And the moment you stop banging, he slows down again. Mm -hmm. That's a horse that's holding back. His thought is not to go forward. Right. And he's going with you because he's following the, the energy, the feel of your seat like mm -hmm. that. That's the fundamentals. And that's what you want. To get it, sometimes you have to drive to show a horse right. that when you lift your seat, you're going to present this feel that says, take your thought forward. And he doesn't take his thought. You might drive to, to make him move away from your leg, to send mm -hmm. him forward off your leg, not mm -hmm. to go with you, but to go forward off your leg. Mm -hmm. And then you stop. He's, he lets go of the thought, to, I'm not going, I'm not going. Don't mm -hmm. ask me again. I'm, st I'm staying here. You've done enough with your legs that he says, I'm going. Mm -hmm. Then you stop quietly, just bring him down. And then you lift your seat. And if he's still stuck, bump, bump, bump with your leg, he goes. Then you bring him down. Just like you might go four strides, five strides. Because you're looking for the change of thought. Yes. You're releasing for the change. So you're releasing your bumping of your leg because he thought forward. Even though he was running away from your leg, he still said, I'm going. Right. Do that two, three, four, 20 times, whatever. You lift your seat and he's ready. He says, I'm going with you. Right. He's just walking. That's get directing a horse's thought. That's great. That's a great explanation. Um, and that does fit, you know, my, where I've come from, that fits the things that I've learned. It's just, it's a little bit, again, like I said earlier, it's the emphasis that it's about rewarding that thought. It's about what's their first thought. Um, so but can I just add to that? Sure. A really important part of this. When I, when I lift my seat, and nobody's home mm -hmm. you know he's busy doing the crossword he's not listening to me mm -hmm. so i put my leg and go bump 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 i'm not making him go bump 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 to get him to go right i'm getting him to stop not going yes i'm and i'm trying to block the thought of not thinking about going oh, that's okay. the thing i'm not getting firmer with my legs to make him out of it get him out of there i'm getting to stop him thinking about not going. Okay. So it's kind of like, hey, think of something else. That, yeah. That's not what I'm looking for. Or look for something else. So if I would like, if I if I asked you to do something, say I asked you to get out of the chair. Mm -hmm. The hardest part of getting of getting you to get out of a chair is to get you to stop thinking that sitting in that chair was a great idea. Right. Once you've decided I don't want to be in the chair, directing you to go and step over there is easy. Right. But getting you to get out of the chair, getting rid of that mental inertia is the heartbeat. 
That's a so really cool, that's a cool way to look at it. Cause it also depends on a lot of factors for me. If I'm, if I've been sitting for two hours, your likelihood of being able to get me out of the chair is probably going to be pretty good. Right. <laughs> Whereas that- if I'd been working for eight hours and I just sat down, it's yes. going to be a little bit more challenging. So getting you out of the chair, if you've been sitting for t- two hours, your thought to get out of the chair or to stay in the chair, your thought is only a fraction than if you'd been working outside for two hours and you just yes. came down to sit down. Now yes. you've got a strong thought. So I have to get stronger to block that thought. Right. But when you've been sitting for two hours and you're bored and you, you're getting a little numb on your behind, yeah, get asking you to get out of the chair, it's a tiny thought. So I can do a, only a fraction of to um, ask you to leave the chair. Right. right. And so the how big you get to block a horse's thought depends on how strongly he holds onto that thought. Right. Really good. Um, so I want to, I want to talk to you about the, the lateral flexion, um, that you shared. I thought the article, so I saw it on Facebook. I'll make sure to put a link to it so people can go and take a look at it or is it still available? No, it's on Facebook. Okay, good. But you're really setting me up for hate mail. Thank you. Oh no. Oh, maybe I won't do that. (laughs) I just think I, hopefully if people are listening to this, they won't do that uh, with you. But I just thought it was so thought provoking. And, um, and I think it will give people a new way of viewing lateral flexion. So, so first off, how would you how would you define it so that we're working from the same definition, and then share a little bit about your view of it? So uh, when I wrote the article, I have a clear picture what I meant by lateral flexion, and I clearly did not explain it enough because a lot of dressage people got up in arms about it okay. because they, you know, they read Pluvenel and Beaucher and, and these dressage masters who talk about lateral flexion. And we're talking about two different things uh, what I was to what Beaucher was talking about. Okay. But anyway, so I think of lateral flexion in terms of what's been taught in horsemanship today. Mm-hmm. modern horsemanship today and it basically entails that um, you pick up the feel in a in, on an inside rein say the inside it's a left rein you ask a horse to flex his neck to the inside and his feet stay stationary mm-hmm. and he should be light on the feel of the reins and you you're looking for a flexion a bend in the neck of somewhere around 90 degrees maybe a little less maybe a little more depending but basically you're asking him to bend his neck around and be light and responsive to the feel of the rain without moving his feet. His feet should be stationary. My criticism of that. Now, let me just say, I should start off by saying I have asked a lot of trainers and clinicians, including some very famous ones, Mm -hmm. why they do this. And I'm always told it's to build a connection so they're light and responsive on the reins okay that's the thing Mm -hmm. and i understand that because i don't want my horse i don't want it to be a wrestling match with my horse either when i pick Mm -hmm. up an inside rein but my concern is twofold one is that they're focused mainly on the horse bending their neck flexing their neck when I pick up an inside rein, I want the thought, the horse to think about go, thinking to the direction of the inside rein, mm-hmm. not just bending their neck and their eyes are pointing that way or that way or that way. I need them to think there. If they're thinking that way, all I've done is create a trick. 
because I haven't changed a thought. Right. They're still thinking that way. And a lot of horses do that. If you watch videos of trainers teaching lateral flexion, go to YouTube and see it. And you'll see that, that a lot of they bend and their horses will twist their pole and so they're not their head is not perpendicular to the ground mm -hmm. because they're actually mentally pushing that way. And so they physically gets blocked. Right. And for people that are, so some of the folks are just going to be listening. So basically you're saying that they're, they're following the uh, direction of the rain with their, with their physically, but mentally they're looking the opposite direction or maybe looking forward. They're not yes. following it mentally. That's right. Okay. And I consider that an escape. Okay. They're escaping the pressure of the reins. They're not giving to it because mentally they're not coming around in the direction of the rain. Right. And it makes so total sense. Just escaping the pressure. Right. So avoid. if you were to let the rain go, maybe if they're, if, the, if it's been done enough, they're not going to follow their thought. Uh, like their feet aren't going to move forward and follow yeah. their thought, but it's like that, what you were saying earlier, there's that piece of them. There's that little piece that it hasn't, change that thought and it's going to that's show right. up other places okay so keep that's going right. yeah so that's the first problem i have with it the second problem is maybe even more fundamental and that is that they is the requirement that the horse not move his feet that bothers me <clears throat> because when i want my horse to think around to the inside i want their inside hind to step to the outside I want my horse to set himself up to travel in the direction I've asked him to think. Okay. And a couple of things I want to say about this. The reason that's important is when you don't do that, you're setting a horse up to be crooked in his turns and his circles. So you're, and you're going to, we're going to get lots of hate mail from dressage people here, but I come from a dressage background. So I'm going to stand on the mountain and defend it. Uh -huh. <laughs> when I pick, when I turn a horse, if you come from a dressage world, the dogma is that you ask a horse to turn and you do that by putting a flexion on the inside rein, putting a feel on the outside rein and applying inside leg to step mm -hmm. the hindquarters over. Mm -hmm. And the reason you do that, because when you pick up the inside rein to get a flexion, the horse drifts out. Right. Because he doesn't follow it. So what they, what in dressage we are taught is to stop that happening by putting a fence up, which we call the outside rein, mm -hmm. but it's just a fence. It doesn't fix it. It doesn't, the horse doesn't think, oh, outside rain's in play. I better think more to the inside. No, it's just a fence. Interesting. And it stops him. Okay. Because it doesn't, that inside rain needs to connect to the inside hind to step under so the horse can actually negotiate the corner. But instead they drift out on their shoulders. So I understand why dressage riders do it. And I, there's also an ex, I also feel I understand why horses drift to the outside when you, you do that. Um, but that's another topic. Mm -hmm. the, but the other thing about it is that even if I'm wrong, the reason horsemanship trainers teach the lateral flexion is to keep, teach a horse to be soft to the feel of the reins and follow it. Fine. What's the problem though with asking them to disengage the hind foot? Why does the horse need to be stationary? 
Right. I want the inside rein to be able to connect all four feet just as well later on when they've got this established, I will teach them to follow the feel of my inside leg. So if I want the horse to disengage or bend or all four feet to disengage, like in a leg yield, then I can use my leg, no problem. But I don't want that from the beginning because what it sets up a horse to be crooked, at the very minimum, it sets them up to be crooked in their turns and their circles. And then you're using an outside rein. At the worst, it's teaching a horse to rub a neck. Now, for those who don't know what rubber necking is, it is when you pick up a feel on the reins, the horse bends his head, bends his neck that way and keeps going that way. Mm -hmm. And you'll see horses do that quite a lot in a panic. But they it's because that inside rein does not help disengage the hind foot. And so they rub a neck. And it's a, if you I hope Molly, you've never ridden a horse with a rubber neck, but it's scary as hell. I can imagine. I have not ever had that happen, but I can imagine that it would be incredibly scary. Imagine um, driving a car and you turn the wheel and the car keeps going. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's what it's like. Yeah, that's a good that's a good analogy. So in my background, um lateral flexion is at its very rudimentary beginning level is taught as a one rein stop. Yes. And a lot of times what I found was that people would get stuck in thinking that the two were synonymous. Yes. Right. That, that lateral flexion meant one rein stop. So, um, you know, the way, the way that I understood it, it, the, the stopping part and the lateral flexion part in the beginning is all about control and, and safety so that if somebody gets into a into a jam, it's uh, an easy way to teach people and horses to have some control. So, what are your what are your thoughts on that? Okay, so I I know that um, this is an interview of me, and I'm the one that's supposed to be on the spot. But let me ask you. Yes. <laughs> so, what's the important thing that keep the one rein stop is? People call it a safety brake, emergency brake, whatever yes. you want to call it. To, right. For a horse that's about to take off or buck, it's about getting him more under control. What's yeah. the important part about a one rein stop that gets the horse back under control? Is it the stop or is it the disengagement? Ooh, that's a really good question. It It is the disengagement. That's right. But I think for, for people that it's a quick way to get a moment where you can get off if needed. Sure. Right. Um, sure. But I, but I, I hear what you're saying that that part maybe isn't taught that truly what, where your control lies is in that hindquarter. So in my experience, people train the one rein stop and they, when they start, they bend the horse to the inside, the hindquarter step around, step around, step around and the horse stops and they release. Mm -hmm. When that gets, when they've been practicing and practicing in the arena a few thousand times, they get to the point where the horse feels the rain and they stop. They don't disengage and the people release. Uh, okay, I hear what you're saying. So what happens when they really do need it is the horse isn't disengaging because they've, and he's not stopping because he's in semi, he's in half panic. Oh, okay. And so it's just problematic. But if you say, if you, if he knows, disengage, disengage, doesn't matter if he disengages 30 times. You can ride that because mm -hmm. he's not he's not 
taking off over the cliff or through the fence. Right. And he will calm down um, unless it's a panic. Uh, I, you're going to hate this, but I don't teach one rain stops either because I think they're dangerous. But anyway, that's another subject. No, that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> um, so I've just seen a few horses um, pan, you know, that really are going to panic and you try to shut them down with a one rain stop, it builds a panic. Right. Right. And 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 if that's okay if you know not to do it because this is not the right time, but a lot of people are drilled in about it, have the importance of the one rain stop, and they don't have the judgment to say, yeah, this will be helpful now, or no, this is going to make things worse. Right. And if they but, think if they think that, and I did this, I thought this when I was first starting. I thought that the one rain stop was the only way to stop. Yeah. Right. Anytime. Yeah. And um and then also in case of emergency. It is the only thing to do. Whereas, yeah. you know, now I know that there's a tons of, tons of different ways to approach yeah. it. Um, so, so I will disengage a horse that's about to lose the plot and take off for Mercury. Mm -hmm. But I will disengage them. I will disengage them. I'll disengage them until they come down. And so if they've got this panicky feeling that they've got to go, I'm not shutting, saying you can't move. I'm just directing and, and, and minimizing the, the ability to move. I'm not saying you can't move. Right. And you're shaping the quality of the movement instead That's of right. this, instead of this uh, board, this stiff yes. board, you're saying, why don't you soften a little bit? Why don't you try to soften? That's right. Okay. And I can adjust the feel on the reins to how, how much I need them to quit or how much I'm going to give them room to move. Okay. I can do it from a moment to moment stance. Okay. Yeah. I don't think you're going to get any hate mail. Um, I think this is really interesting. I think that I think a lot of people listening to this, it will cause them to think a little bit more about why, why are they doing what they're doing? What's the purpose behind it? Um, and I love what you shared about the lateral flexion that it's not about for you. It's not about moving the horses. It's not the bend in the neck. It's not where their head is. It's where their thought is. When you activate your rein, are they thinking toward that rein? Yeah. Right. Oh, that's right. Are they okay. their thought going with the feel? Right. Or, yeah. or are they, is their thought going somewhere else? So when you hear the phrase follow a feel, to you that means the follow part is with the mind. Yes, right. Okay. And then the feet will follow. The right. feet follow the thought. Horse, the only time that doesn't happen is is in a reflex, you know, like a spinal reflex, you know, you mm -hmm. they'll knee jerk. Mm -hmm. spinal reflex. There's no thought process. Horses have very few reflexes. Even most shine is not reflex mm -hmm. because most horses can be trained out of their shine. And if you can train something out of it, it's not a reflex. Okay. It, re it requires, the fact that you can train something out of it says there's some mental processing right. for it to happen. Yeah. It just happens so fast we think it's a reflex Yeah. when they shy, but it's not. That's, yeah, very, very interesting. Um, so was this, did this, did this idea of, of changing a horse's thought, getting, getting to their mind, was that something that was a part of your journey all along? Or was there a moment or a person that you met that really introduced you to that, that you thought, whoa, I got to kind of retool everything? Um, the... The Dutch couple that I worked for raced, they went up to the riding school in Sydney. <clears throat> no, they're very strict down the line, European style 
approach to horses. Mm -hmm. Everything was an exercise. You want a horse to do this, do exercise number seven, do exercise number 13 and number five. Okay. You want to do something else, exercise this, this, this. That right. was them. But <clears throat> when I was an academic, I was doing a sabbatical in um, Finland. And uh, I uh, had a guy who was a research assistant for me in my lab. And he said, oh, you're into horses. You'd be interested. You might be interested to meet my grandfather's brother. And I said to him, well, why? It's a big deal. Well, it turned out he had, he was a guy in his 70s. And he had a team of pack horses. And he'd, his whole family for generations had had a business where they would run supplies up into Lapland using the pack horses mm -hmm. to the laps. And anyway, I got to meet um, this guy and um, his English was um, equally as good as my Finnish. <laughs> <laughs> but somehow we hit it off, really hit it off. And uh, he was, when I went out there one day, he was saddling horses for a trip. He had a team of fjords and um, Icelandics and stuff. And he was setting them up and he was getting them ready and he was doing some training to get them fit for the trip. So he's putting packs on them and stuff. And he was, I was watching him saddle a horse and he went to grab a pack saddle and he went to lift it and he went to put it on the horse and he stopped halfway. And I, why well, don't I thought, well, he's forgotten something. He's trying <laughs> to think, he's old, you know, this guy's old. He's, so he stopped and he touched the horse on the shoulder and he stopped, he waited. And then he threw the saddle on and then he went to reach for the, some of the harness and he went to get a buckle. I remember get trying, he went to read a buckle and he's going to tie it up and he just stops. And he reaches and he touches the horse again. And he, and he just waits and he touches it. And I thought, what the hell? I was thinking this is some strange Finnish ritual that I know nothing about. <laughs> and that's how the whole thing proceeded. He said, and he said, would you like to saddle that horse? And so I go up, grab the pack saddle, throw it on the horse, start doing up all the buckles and stuff. And he's looking at me like thinking, this must be some Australian ritual across <laughs> the And what I, what I learned later, when I really thought about it and talked to him about it, he was waiting for the horse to be ready for the mm. next step. Mm. He wasn't waiting for the horse to stand still because they were. Right. He wasn't waiting for, waiting for, you know, because he'd forgotten something and he had to go back to that. He was waiting for the horse to check in and acknowledge that he was about to ask him something. That's really cool. And that got me thinking. And uh, he was an amazing man. I spent as much time as I could with him. The, the very sad thing about it, Molly, is that he, a few years later, he died and his son took over the business and his son got rid of all the horses and brought in the trucks. Oh. And I thought that was tragic because the generations of knowledge died with him. Right. I've written a couple of books, short stories, and I talk about these old guys um, who mentored me at a riding school and their name was Walter Amos. And they are they are they didn't truly exist, but they are a tribute to him to my friend. My oh, friend. that's really cool. That's because really cool. Wisdom is like that. Yeah. So he he was the first guy that got me thinking about it differently. That horses weren't there just to serve us. That we were there as their friends. Mm -hmm. And when they were in trouble, he taught me this: when they were in trouble, they were friends needing a guiding hand. 
they weren't naughty horses needing training. That's so wonderful. And so these books, the the stories that you wrote, um, are is that something that people can get get or? Um, yeah, there's uh, so they're on Amazon, or okay. they can go through my um, my public website, goodhorsemanship.com.au. Okay. okay, cool. They can get them through there. There. Okay. So there's three books. There's two two books on short stories about Walter Famous. Who make fun of me, and I'm I'm the butt of all their jokes. But they teach me so much about horsemanship. And then there's another book which is more on the principles of horsemanship, um, called The Essence of Good Horsemanship. Both all those books, Amazon or through my website. There's okay, great. I'll make sure people have a link to it because I know I'm always looking for books to read, and that sounds sounds like a wonderful wonderful read. Um, so I want to ask you. Uh, you know, you, you're, you're from Australia, but you're here in California right now teaching some clinics. Mm -hmm. um, so is, that's what you're doing full time is traveling and teaching. Yeah. Yes. Um, I'm always curious to find out um, in your experience of working with people, what's, what's something that you see that gets in people's way on their, in their learning um, that, and what could you what could you say to help them i have a couple of thoughts on things that i think are the biggest obstacles to most people including myself not just i'm not you know people out there shouldn't think this is just about them this is i'm as much a student as any of them but i think the couple of things that get in people's way um in general is one is their curiosity i i think too many people that i see especially new people that come to clinics um, they come because they have a problem they want fixed. And if you don't fix it for them or show them how to fix it, then that's not of interest. If you try to explain why you why they have a problem, that's less important than you to them than how you fix it. And I think that gets in the way of them being better horse people because if you're all you're interested in is in methods and exercises, <clears throat> you'll always come across problems with horses that you don't know what to do about. Right. You'll right. Always. So it's, it's, a, it's, the, it's the lack of no. curiosity that's the problem. The lack of curiosity. Right? Okay. And I think it, the more important than we know how to do something, we should know why. Because if you know why, you can come up with your own techniques, your mm -hmm. own exercises, and you can adjust them from it for every horse that to be more suitable. But if you, it's all about how you're stuck with what the exercise you, you got and when the horse comes arrives at your place that isn't interested in what you have then you're stuck you don't know what to do because you don't understand why he's like that right right that's so really that's the one of the big things the other big thing is and it's true of all of us that gets in our way is our history mm. overcoming what we think we already know that is such a challenge. Oh, and you don't want to let go of that. You you put a lot of time into those things. And the thing that's curious is that we get cranky when our horses won't let go of their history oh. and that they know. But we're quite happy to hang on to what we know. Yes. Yeah, that's such a good that's such a good point. And I understand it because we hang on to what we know because it's got us through. And we, we, it hasn't killed us yet. Yes. And, and, you know, and somebody with a lot more prestige and guru status than Ross Jacobs said 
something differently. So why would I listen to a, a dope from Aussie, from Australia? Right. So I understand that, but it's it it get, does get in the way yeah. all the time, and yeah. I see it all the time. And I don't expect people to, you know, be handed an idea, make sense to them, and now suddenly everything's different. It takes work and commitment, and you know, weeks, months, years. But it's important that you start today. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's interesting because there's a there's a time that we need to be dedicated to an idea. Or maybe you'll maybe you'll disagree with me on this, but I feel like in our learning process, sometimes we need to put blinders on and and practice a technique until we until we have it before mm-hmm. we can then kind of pull it apart and. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. You, you need certain skills. Right. Ideas aren't enough because right. it's like saying you understand how to drive a car. You've read the manual. So now you're going to get in and drive it. Right. That's not how it works. Right. You have to learn some basic skills. Yes. And then you learn feel. Yes. And okay. it's no different with a horse. So, um, for example, I think – I. Pirelli, we all owe Pirelli a huge um, debt. I'm, I'm including myself this. Whether or not you like his approach, whether mm-hmm. you like his methods or not, the thing that he's done more than anyone, including Tom Dorrance and Ray Hunt and anyone you want to name, we all owe Pirelli such a huge debt because he has got people looking for something else and he has introduced them to techniques. That's the other part I wanted to say. So more than any of us put together, all the rest of us clinicians and teachers and trainers put together, he has got more people thinking about horses differently than from the old guys. And and that's that's monumental. But he's also, when he's taught people techniques, rope handling skills, positioning, adjusting your energy, all those sorts of things you want that we all need to be able to communicate with a horse. So he's got now later on, if you don't, if you think there's limitations, you, you can go and find out what Tom Dorrance had to say. Well, a lot of the folks that listen to this, you know, are studying Pirelli. They have a Pirelli background or have studied it. And, um, and I think we'll appreciate that thought and that, and Pat would too, you know, that it's, it's a foundation. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a foundation of, of skills, but even he, when I was, when I was around him, when, when we got to a certain level, he was like, go, go. I remember Buck Branneman was coming nearby and doing a clinic and he wanted all of us to go and check it out. Like go and learn from other people. There's so much more out there. Um, so that, that's really, that's really great. So, uh, can you think of a time in your journey that was challenging for you? Um, I know that there's probably only one time in your journey, <laughs> yeah. uh, but that that kind of stands out for you that was like maybe something that you're thankful for now that happened but was challenging then? Um, are you, you mean like an experience or do you mean like a, a, something that I challenge in, in terms of I, I've got a horse and I don't know what to do with it? either either one um there's always going to be a horse in my future that in my past and future that i don't know what i'm going to do with 
uh, I'll say, and so one doesn't stand out. But I do believe that, you know, especially when I was training, um, I'd do a stack, a whole stack of horses in a row, and they'd all turn out pretty well. And then mm. I'd start to think, hell, maybe I do know what I'm doing. And then some so and so would send me a horse that makes me realize I'm a total schmuck. Yes. And that still happens. This clinic that we just finished, and he's, the horse is coming back. There's a horse in this clinic that's got me scratching my head, and I'm experimenting with it because oh. I really don't know what I'm going to do. What? And I would love to have it at my place for a year to see if I could what I if I could get through. Um, but I, I, you know, that there are some things I've learned about horses that I didn't. No, I don't think I would have known through training. I don't think I could have pick, picked it up that are really important. And um, I, I've told the story at some clinics. I used to do an awful lot of long-distance trekking. Like I, I would pack up my horses and go into the bush for several months at a time and not see anybody for weeks. Wow. Just me and a couple of horses. I was, um, and... What I discovered was the relationship was very different with a horse that you live with 24-7 than the horse that you pull out for an hour a day and ride in the arena or go for a trail ride or whatever. And I I hope this bike's not too noisy. It's, no, it's okay. Okay. The, I, the story I tell, I was had a couple of my horses and I was in South Australia and I was up in the mountains and we hadn't seen anybody for three weeks. And I was at least three weeks from a town. And I had an accident with um, a fire or campfire. And I burnt my eyes. <gasps> oh, my gosh. And I, I couldn't see. And my horse, one of my horses was a big black pure Percheron. I needed to go down to the creek, which is probably... A, 150, 200 meters away through the bush and uh, twice a day. And I would grab Ch China's tail and he would lead me to the creek. He'd have a drink sometimes and others and he'd let me wash my eyes and fill up water. And then he'd lead me back to the camp. I never taught him to do it. Wow. And how did he know? How did he know? I needed to go to the creek. Hmm. How did he know to wait? How did he know when it was time? And, I, and I'm not one to believe in, you know, uh, animal communication, mm -hmm. telepathy type things. I don't think that's true. But I do think that the relationship that you have with a horse in a situation where 24 hours a day you're with them mm -hmm. and you're dependent on each other. We had so many adventures. So many weird circumstances happen to us that the relationship is very different and it's, than it is when you pull them out for their session every day. Right. So how I you, learned that. How do you think he knew? I think he knew from my body language. Okay. But I do do know that I I do believe he knew that I needed him. Right. Yeah. I do. There was another time when we were in the bush and uh, the horses were all uh, grazing. They just hobbled so they could, and I could hear the chains, the hobble chains, so if they mm -hmm. got too far away and stuff. Well, we had a herd of Brumbies, um, you call them Mustangs, wild mm -hmm. horses. 
they came through the camp and my horses went with them. And I thought, damn, I've lost the horses. What am I going <laughs> to do now? Terrible blah, blah. About an hour and a half, they came back into camp. It was pitch black. Wow. Coming back to camp. How did they know? Hmm. Why did they keep going with their friends? Right. Right. Oh, that's so, that's really interesting. So, so you're, you, go ahead. I was just going to say, I've learned, like these sorts of experiences have taught me there is much more to horses. They are far more complex and there is much more to horses and what is possible than we get from our riding lessons and our clinics and whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I truly sure. believe. But that's anecdotal. I don't have evidence. It's just anecdotes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you do. I mean, you have, you have a lot more evidence than a lot of folks, you know, being out there for that long on your own. Mm. Um, that's a, there's a lot of evidence there. Mm. Um, I've yeah. been very lucky. I've been incredibly fortunate. I've never bought a horse, but every one of the horses that were give, was given to me was worth, worth a million bucks. Hmm. Every one of and makes hmm. me think everyone is. We just yeah. don't always give them the chance to be. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's it, even this one that I've been working for the clinic, terribly troubled. He's worth a million bucks because he doesn't try to kill me when I walk in the pen. Because mm -hmm. if I would felt as bad as he did, I'd kill everybody that came near me. Right. Right. I know they're they're they truly are um amazing what they've withstood and what they're still willing to yeah be yeah to go through yeah yeah which puts an, a terribly onerous responsibility on us mm -hmm. we drag them into our life so they owe us nothing we owe them everything yeah the, the day a horse knocks on my door and says come on i've got the saddle let's go then i expect him to step up right. but until that day it's my job to step up that's really that's so good that's great um so what's something that you're looking forward to going home to see my wife nice really so, nice um, and oh, go on sorry how, how much longer are you uh, about another five weeks here oh wow wow that's a long time it's normal normally between six and eight weeks i come to the states twice okay. a year okay and then um when I get home, I think I'm home for 10 days and then I'm away for another two months. And does your wife ever travel with you or is she taking care of the, the yeah. farm while you're gone? We live in a fairly reasonably remote area. So having access to people looking after, to look after animals and stuff is not possible. Okay. So, I mean, she comes to the States twice a year because she's, um, her parents live in Chicago. So I have to be home then. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that would be that'd be challenging not to be able to travel together. It's, uh, Michelle and I used to work together and we used to do clinics. We used to train together. Best time of my life. Aww. Loved it. We could have lunch together every day. That's great. I mean, yeah. I, I'm, I'm really lucky. I've got wonderful people who support me and host me for clinics and everything. But coming home to someone else's wife is not the same as coming home to your wife, to your own <laughs> wife. <laughs> Yeah, very true. Yeah, so, yeah that's yeah. that's great. But I'm lucky. She's amazing. She yeah. really is amazing. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Well, hopefully she'll get to hear this. Um, <laughs> so, uh, how can people how can people connect with you? How can they learn more about you? Oh, it's easy. If you, I did it a few, 
few months ago, I Googled Ross Jacobs and it just came up with so much stuff that I have. <laughs> um, um, although there is, I think there's a Ross Jacobs who's a bookkeeper somewhere in the States, I found. Um, but uh, look, I have a Facebook page, Good Horsemanship, for Ross Jacobs. Um, I have a, a website um, that's public called goodhorsemanship.com.au. I have a membership site that's $15 a month and they get videos and oh, articles cool. and Q&As and interviews and podcasts. Um, and that's called Good Horse Members, not Good Horsemanship, goodhorsememembers.com. Okay. And there's a YouTube channel if you, if you search Ross Jacobs Horses. There's Great. A YouTube, I don't put much on the YouTube channel. I now reserve most of the new stuff to go on the membership site. Okay, cool. It's a lot of work. I, no one told me when I was started as a horse trainer that I had to be a businessman. <laughs> so unfair. Right, right. It's yeah. really horrible. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm sure that there are many people that appreciate that you do. I appreciate it. I've learned a lot in Thank talking you. to you. And um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad you're, you're doing it. And it kind of carries that story you told at the very beginning of Harry. It's that, that generosity that you're, you're sharing, you know, what you've learned. And if the, if the man in, that you met in Finland had been able to do that, uh, how, how cool would that be? Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. Look, I hope you really enjoy Harry. I think and <clears throat> don't let him off with questions you're not satisfied with the answers. Pound him because he is a he is a font of knowledge. That's and wonderful. I've never I, I think he's the best horseman I've ever really seen. I never got to see Tom Drones, but I mm -hmm. would put Harry up there as close as what I can understand. Yeah, I'm really, I'm really looking forward to it. Um, so I'll, I'll let you know how it goes. <laughs> it's great. And say <laughs> yeah. good day to him for me. Okay. Thank you so much for doing this. Oh, thank I you. Appreciate your it, was, time. it was a treat. I enjoyed it very much. What a wonderful human. I'm grateful to Ross for putting in the effort to catalog his knowledge. And that story of the Finnish farmer really hit home with me. The idea that there are people out there that have a lifetime of experience and knowledge and when they go, it's gone unless they've passed it on in some way. And it just made it even more clear that what I'm doing with the podcast and the virtual learning, um, how important it is. And I feel like it's my purpose uh, to find the Finnish farmers and and people like Ross, who also are, you know, they already have videos of what they're doing, but to shine a light on them and bring them to you um, so that you can gain even more knowledge and help yourself and your horses. So um, I am definitely inspired by this conversation. I hope you found some wonderful things as well. I'd love your help spreading the word about the podcast. And I'm grateful that you're here. I'm grateful that you took the time to listen or watch. And uh, I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day.